First on film and entertainment, the big weekend before the Oscars. So, folks, you know, this is kind of like the grand final. If Essendon wins year after year after year, Peter Krause, you know what that's like, don't you? Absolutely no idea. Rick King, you would love to know this. I, I saw a table during the week, my friend. Now, this is not something that you'd be particularly proud of. Who is the worst side in the AFL-VFL history, excluding those that are no longer there like university, in terms of win-loss ratio? Oh, you've got to be talking about St Kilda, haven't you? I am. The mighty Saders. The ones who've won one flag by one solitary point. In fact, I don't think it's all about the Oscars, much more uplifting. Exactly. Look, let's start with that. I know we did this when the Oscar nominations first came out. Well, in fact, no, look, sorry, because we are on Jair, let's talk about Chaim Topol. Uh, I mean, look, you, you cannot get away from the fact that if I was thinking about films with a Jewish theme, Fiddler on the Roof is it. I mean, is there anything else? It is, it is the quintessential movie. And if you're going to be known for something like that, which stays with you for the rest of your life, I don't think that's a bad bad thing to, to, to have. It's something that most people would be ex- exceptionally proud of. And, of course, th- this is, I mean, this is a, a guy who's won a Golden Globe as well, uh, nominated for an Academy Award, you know, for his portrayal of Tevye. What, what are your recollections, uh, Peter Krause, of uh, Haim Topol? Look, he was a good actor. Uh, I mean, he was certainly terrific in uh, Fiddler on the Roof, as you mentioned received an Oscar nomination for lead actor. And uh, If I Were a Rich Man became an emblematic song uh, for him uh, throughout his career. But he was in other films as well, uh, like The Fall Winter Comes and Cast a Giant Shadow and so on. Uh, And amusingly enough, in Flash Gordon, it's it's interesting that Fiddler on the Roof, um, and there was a really good documentary about the making of Fiddler on the Roof at the Jewish uh, International Film Festival, but uh, Fiddle on the Roof uh, was directed by Norman Jewison, who is not Jewish. And I found that really, uh, really very interesting. Well, I, I suppose, Peter, this, this goes to a conversation that, and Greg, you and I have talked about this as well. I mean, do you have to be Jewish to portray a Jewish person? Do you have to be, you know, African-American to portray a, a black person? And this has been a conversation that obviously has reached its zenith in recent years. And it's all about diversity as well, to make sure that there, there, there is enough diversity and, and so forth in, in movies, in, in theatre, in television, uh, in any form of the arts. Now, I'm all for that, but I'm also for the best person for the job. And, I, you know, I, it, that's not about colour, it's not about sex, it's not about any of that. Uh, if you are an actor, you can portray a role. If you're a director, you can direct. That, that's what it's all about, isn't it, Peter? Oh, look, absolutely. I, I have no problem with uh, uh, with actors um, uh, portraying roles that may not be reflective of their own uh, tie bush or, or personality or whatever. Uh, it's just that you want to be careful to avoid caricature uh, and you also want to be uh, careful to avoid any possibility of racism or whatever, especially if we're talking about uh, black actors and so on that could easily fulfil particular roles. But I agree with you. Uh, I mean, you don't have to be a murderer to uh, portray a murderer Thank on you. screen. So uh, I fully agree. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because 
I don't think we've seen this yet. Golda, the Golda My Ear story, Greg, uh, uh, that's coming up with uh, uh, a very, very well-known actress uh, in terms of, of uh, Meryl Streep, I believe, in the lead role, is it not? Uh, does she play Golda by you or have I got that wrong? Peter, do you know? Uh, I, you might be right. I thought it might have been Helen Mirren, but you've oh, already yeah, not Meryl Streep. I know, that's me. That's my mistake. I think it must be. Let me just uh, look that up while we're while we're on air. But I, yes, I think it's Helen Mirren, uh, and and sort of almost unrecognisable because I, I've actually seen the the photo of, uh, of sort of the way that she's portraying Golda Meir, and you've got to really really look closely to to detect uh, that she you know she, she is who she is, and and I mean that's obviously makeup and all of those sorts of things, and and that's that's fair enough, but. Nevertheless, that that sort of goes to exactly the discussion that we're having at the moment. Having said that, uh, I, I mean, wherever it's kind of, are you typecast? And we, we've talked about the other roles that Topol has played, uh, or briefly mentioned it. But I mean, that'd be something you'd be mighty proud of. I I, I mean, I haven't had had it, heard an interview with him. Have you ever heard an interview with Topol talking about you know what a significant mark that made in in his life? Is it ever ever either? It did, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I, I have seen that interviews where he uh, he remarks upon it being such an important part of his career, and that he is very proud uh, of being uh, on uh, uh, in that film and getting the Oscar nomination. So, uh, and he still was able to achieve some diverse roles uh, after that. So it didn't necessarily uh, typecast him. So, uh, but yes, he was very proud of his appearance yeah. on the on the roof. And it, by the way, I, I have checked it. It is, it, it is indeed Ellen Mirren. So I apologise uh, for the mistake that I made earlier. But I mean, I, look, it's it's uh, it's something that I, I reckon growing up as a sort of young person. I knew the impact of Fiddler on the Roof, and uh, it, that stayed with me all my life. Greg, did you like the film? Did, I mean, if you reflect back, or it's too long ago since you last saw it. Too long ago since I last saw it. Um, yeah, fair enough. No, no. That, that, well, look, uh, Vale to uh, Hein Topol, and uh, and uh, you know his legacy lives on. So, I mean, um, you you talked about uh, the the Jewish International Film Festival. There was um, was that the there was a doco which was made in 2019. Is that the one, A Miracle of Miracles, Fiddler? Is that the one? That's the one, yes. Yeah, yeah, that was the one we were talking about. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking now at his career and, and so forth and, and, and how uh, Fiddler, I mean, he started back, he started acting back in, well, in terms of filmography, back in 1961 and Fiddler came yep. 10 years later, so which was 71 when it uh, when the Tevia role came. And you're right, I mean... <laughs> Talk about the sublime to the ridiculous. To go to Flash Gordon <laughs> nine years after that uh, is, uh, is rather, um, yes, unusual. Anyway, uh, let it, let's move on from there, uh, talking about Oscar nominations, etc., because we are coming up to the Oscars in the next, uh, well, in the next uh, 24 hours or so. And as such, uh, let's have a look at the nominations again, just briefly touch on them, see what we, we expect. I mean, the, the the really interesting one for me is Best Picture and Best Director. Uh, let's go through them. All Quiet on the Western Front, which has done particularly well in award ceremonies. Avatar, The Way of Water, The Banshees of Inner Sharon, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, Women Talking. If we're talking about popularity, Top Gun would get it, right? Because it, it was just 
it brought people back to the cinema after COVID. I mean, there's no no doubt about that. But uh, it, it's an interesting category because to me, everything everywhere all at once is the is the film that stands out as people's sort of people are talking about it a lot. I I personally didn't regard it as being the best film of the year of that list, and I haven't seen All Quiet on the Western Front. Do you think it deserves it, Peter? Uh, yes, I do. And and, and uh, looking at uh, the last-minute polling uh, by various uh, outlets in the US in particular about where their votes are probably heading and seeing yeah. what happened at the Writers' Guild and the mm. Directors' Guild, Producers' Guild and so on, Everything Everywhere All at Once is likely to win uh, Best Film. Um, at, look, it is a very clever, uh, very idiosyncratic film and uh, it deserves uh, an award, if nothing else, for being quite an original film, whereas Top Gun Maverick is just a complete retread of the first Top Gun film. It cannot possibly deserve a Best Film Oscar. Oh, look, you, you, you really downplayed that film, I remember, at the time, and... Uh... We all argued with you, and we're still arguing with you. So what about you, Greg? I mean, uh, give me a voice of reason here. Come on. Uh, I presume you also think everything everywhere all at once because of that. Well, it's winning everything everywhere all all over the place at the moment. Um, so that puts it in favouritism at the moment. So I think it will win, even though, in my opinion, it wasn't the best film of last year anyway. Yeah, well, what did you think? This is probably pick up best foreign language film. Well, yeah. Well, what do you think is, is the best film of last year? I mean, I, is it amongst the ten that have nominated or not? Well, I, I look. In my opinion, I I put Top Gun Maverick at the top of my list last year. Yeah, there you go. There you go, Peter. Anything to say, my friend? We're wrong. Well, I'm a Maverick, and I disagree. Very <laughs> <laughs> good. I like it. Look, I mean, in terms of quirkiness, I thought the Banshees of Inner Sharon was uh, was a pretty remarkable picture. Uh, look. It's not a big audience film, and often the win- winners are not big audience films. So you know that'll be that'll be interesting. So let's go to best director, and and Martin McDonough is indeed dominated for Banshees, and then you've got uh, the, the Fablemans. I'm sorry, I I thought it was good, but it wasn't great. That's my personal opinion. I, I thought Todd Field did a great job with Tar, uh, quite slow moving initially, but really you know very very complex. Uh, uh, then you've got Daniel Kwan and. And Daniel Scheinert with everything, everywhere, all at once. Well, a film can't direct itself. So if it wins Best Film, uh, should it not win um, Best Director as well? And Ruben Ostlund for Triangle of Sadness. Do we think that everything is going to get it again? What do you think, Greg? Can you ask me? I think, um, look, they love Steven Spielberg there. And and making a film based on his own sort of childhood and his own memories and the influences that shaped him. I think he'll. Yep, yep, that makes sense. What about you, Peter? Yeah, look, I think that Daniels are more likely to win it for everything, everywhere, but I think there is a lot of sympathy for Steven Spielberg for his uh, uh, incredible career, and it's possible. And Oscars will always come up with surprises that uh, Spielberg will win it for The Fablements. Mm. Yeah, I, that that's certainly. At the back of my mind as well, even though I wasn't as enamoured. As I say, I thought it was a, a good film, a very, very good film, arguably, but I didn't think it was a great film. The best lead actor, and Austin Butler's been getting quite a bit of traction, but, uh, I mean, Colin Farrell was quite sensational as well in Banshees. I, I, look, 
I know he's probably not going to win it, but I wish he would. Brendan Fraser, he just blew me away in the whale. I thought he was absolutely magnificent. Rebirth of his career, arguably the best role he's ever had. Paul Mescal in After Sun and Bill Nye in Living. Uh, go to you for this one, Peter. Look, uh, the uh, trade publications are calling it too close to call uh, between uh, Austin Butler and uh, Colin Fraser. Um, Colin Farrell, I should say, and Brendan Fraser. Um, so amongst the three of them, um, I think Austin Butler might just win it. Really? Okay. And and you, Greg? Yep. Greg? We've Greg's lost Colin. Yeah. Greg, gone. I oh, know. Hopefully he'll uh, he'll come back in because uh, that's rather interesting. I don't know what what's uh, what's happened to him. All right, let's keep going, and uh, I hope hope that Greg sort of dials back in during the course of the show. Best lead actress, Kate Blanchett. You know that I want her to win. You know that, don't you, Peter? Anna de Armas for yep. Blonde, Andrea Riseborough for Two Leslie, Michelle Williams for The Fablemans, Great Turn, and Michelle Yeoh. Everything, everywhere, all at once, and. You know, I, I suppose I, Michelle was terrific, but Kate was better. But I think Michelle's going to get it. You? I agree with you. Uh, the uh, again, the uh, momentum behind everything, everywhere, all at once is quite uh, quite high in Hollywood at the moment, and so it is quite likely that Michelle Yeoh would would win. But I agree with you as well that Kate Blanchett thoroughly deserves it. Mm. And best supporting actor. Brendan Gleeson for Banshees, Brian Tari Henry for Causeway, Judd Hirsch for The Fablemans, Barry Keehan for The Banshees, I mean, competing against Brendan, and Ki Hugh Kwan in Everything Everywhere All at Once. Now, Ki Hugh Kwan was, was uh, pretty impressive, I, I but I also, I Barry had the showy role in The Banshees, and uh, Brendan was quite, I, isn't it time for Brendan Gleeson to win an award like this? Surely. Uh, look, it wouldn't be a bad idea for him to win, but he won't. Uh, it, it certainly, I think, will go to Ki Kwan for everything, everywhere, all at once, because I think that momentum is there. Mm. And and talking about uh, momentum, Angela Bassett for Black Panther, or Hong Cho for Whale, or Kerry Condon for The Banshees. Again, really good role as the uh, as, as Colin Farrell's sister, Jamie Lee Curtis, Everything, everywhere, all at once, and certainly uh, a pretty uh, different role for her. And Stephanie Hugh for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Where do, where do you think that'll go? Look, I think it's likely to go to Angela Bassett. Um, I, I think it's a good performance. I don't know if it's called a great performance. Uh, Kerry Condon is not well known in Hollywood, and that's counting against her in terms of the uh, the voting. And I think the outside chance is Jamie Lee Curtis. For everything, everywhere, especially if uh, that film continues to uh, have that momentum behind it. Yeah, it, I mean, this could be the big, you know, winner take all uh, sort of movie in terms of uh, the the Oscars. Best mm. screenplay, All Quiet on the Western Front, Glass Onion and Ives Out, Mystery. I must admit that I thought that was rather interesting choice, but there we go. Not that it was a bad film, but Living, which I enjoyed, Top Gun Maverick, we've spoken about, and Women Talking, which is a a, a, a quite a a remarkable movie, and I know a lot of people have absolutely adored that. A small audience film, but uh, particularly well done in terms of the the roles and the ensemble nature of the piece. Uh, I, I look, are you are you going to say all quiet on the Western Front, or are you going to go for the populist Top Gun, or where are you heading with this one? 
I'm going with women talking, especially now that uh, the Writers Guild have given it that award. But of course, the uh, the, the runner-up, so to speak, uh, and the possibility is all quiet on the Western Front. Mm, yeah, I mean, Women Talking was brilliantly put together by Sarah Foley. No question about that. Best original screenplay. Now, here we go. Uh, uh, surely it's 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 either Everything Everywhere All at Once or The Fablemans. But you know, I I think the others are really worthy. The Banshees is in a Sharon and Tar and Triangle of Sadness. So, do you think it's going to go between Everything and uh, Fablemans? I think it's going to be Everything Everywhere. However, uh, a, a possible surprise is the very clever script for Tar. Uh, and I think Tar might get a little bit more recognition um, from the Academy than we might assume. Mm, interesting. Okay, well... well I, I, I'll go for Banshee's Minshew in, in that um, category. Oh, terrific. We, we, we've, you, we lost you, Greg, for a period. My connection keeps dropping out for some reason. Must be a lazy Sunday morning somewhere. Uh, exactly. Sorry, my friend. I apologise. I'm not sure what I could have done to change that, but there you go. Now... In terms of cinematography, All Quiet on the Western Front, Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, which I haven't seen, Elvis, Empire of Light, Roger Deakins did a great job. I thought I really noticed noticed the work, uh, the cinematography in that film, and Tar by Florian Hofmeister. Uh, where uh, Empire of Light looked beautiful, I thought, but um, I, I mean, if if I actually had to give it a set of mark for beauty, I would give it to Roger Deakins, and he's a phenomenal cinematographer. I'm not sure that he'll win it, though. What do you reckon, Greg? Look, I think um, all quite on the Western Front. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all those shots in the, on the battlefield and everything were superbly shot. And, yeah, the cinematography in that film was exquisite. Mm-hmm. Peter? Absolutely agree. All quite on the Western Front will most likely win that. It is uh, the camera setups and the photography, uh, cinematography are just superb. Uh, I agree Roger Deakins did a very good job with Empire of Light. But, again, M- Pie of Light is not getting the traction in Hollywood that perhaps it deserves. Mm. Well, Best International Feature, uh, I mean, surely all quiet on the Western Front. The, the others are going to come up uh, short. Argentina, 1985, close from Belgium. And EO from Poland and The Quiet Girl, which is, a, again, a, a fine understated film from Ireland. Uh, yeah, we all agree all quiet on the Western Front? Yes, I think it, it will probably win. Don't discount Argentina 1985. It won some awards early on, and because of its political nature, uh, it's possible that uh, the uh, chapter of the Academy uh, that uh, put it in as a nomination and then uh, everyone who votes for it, uh, who votes in uh, the Academy, is probably going to vote for Argentina 1985. So it's going to be a close call, but yes, I think all quite in the Western Front is likely to win. Greg, you agree? Uh, yeah, I think so. We haven't seen many of the other um, films, apart from A Quiet Girl. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll close with Best Animated Feature. I know there's others, but uh, Guillermo del Toro surely will win this for Pinocchio. Although I loved Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. I thought it was terrific, really, really good. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, The Sea Beast and Turning Red are the other nominations. Pinocchio for you, Greg? I'd say so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and Peter, the the, the, the uh, is that sort of? I mean, it, it's got to be the front runner, yeah. I think that's the only one that we can say confidently is is going to win an Oscar because we can never be a hundred percent confident uh, where the votes will go. But yes, Pinocchio is likely to win it. And we should mention that you mentioned animation. The Australian who's nominated for best short animation. Oh, yeah. um, 
Mm. Yeah, uh, Lachlan Pendragon, who uh, uh, directed An Ostrich Told Me the World is Fake, and I think I believe it. I think it should win an award just for the title alone, but <laughs> it's a wonderful stop-motion animation, but I don't think it's going to win. Yeah, fair enough. Well, so folks, here on Jair 88FM, that is our Oscar preview, and uh, let's see what comes of it. And I don't think there'll be too much slapping taking place on stage, though. Uh, that, that's the one thing that I can confidently predict. So I, um, I, I suspect there'll be uh, maybe, maybe a little bit more security there this year, but who knows. Having said all of that, let's talk about a movie, which, I mean, look, we've seen this sort of thing before. You think about the Mighty Ducks, you think about Cool Runnings, uh, and then you, you sort of add in this new Woody Harrelson movie called Champions, which uh, runs for two hours and four minutes. I didn't think it needed to be that late, long, to be honest. It's That's en- as long as the original film ran for. There we go. Uh, when you say the original, you're talking about the, the Spanish. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, okay. So having said that, it's M-rated, and I've mentioned Woody Harrelson. He, he plays Marcus, basketball coach, dreams of a big future in the NBA. Problem is he's got no filter. He says what he thinks. He says what he thinks when he wants to say it, and nothing holds him back. And that's resulted in several lost jobs in a variety of locations, both in the United States and abroad. Now he's an assistant to head coach Phil Peretti, played by Ernie Hudson, who has known him since their college days. Although Ernie Hudson is older, so I can only imagine they went to college together, but not in the same classes or not in the same year. I don't know. Did Did you figure that one out? I I noted that afterwards, but I I, I haven't sort of I, I've sort of gone through this in my head. So what should he coach him at college? Coached him at college. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, good. Well, during a game, Marcus vehemently disagrees with some of Peretti's calls, and soon enough, the angst turns physical. Now, if that isn't bad enough, before long, he's facing a drink-driving charge that could see him imprisoned. So it is he reluctantly accepts a community corrections order that sees him coaching a team of mentally impaired players. Less than promising start, shall we say, and uh, after that, he really just wants to do his time and get out. Now, there's a few things going on here. The team's best player refuses to play for him. Another only throws the ball over his head, hasn't even managed to hit the backboard yet, let alone score any points. A third one bails frequently because he's got a hard-ass boss at work, and so on. Now, among the unexpected issues to emerge here is that one team member turns out to be the brother of a woman called Alex, played by Caitlin Olsen, with whom Marcus had a one-night stand that did not end well. Hmm. So that's a little bit awkward, shall we say. Still, Marcus warms to his new temporary role while members of the team come to appreciate him. And as a result, a new opportunity emerges that will leave Marcus with an important decision to make. This is, as you said, Greg, based on the 2018 Spanish film Campeones. It's a feel-good comedy, dramatic flourishes, written by Mark Rizzo. He's got a TV background. This is his first feature film writing effort. And... Look, it's it is largely predictable. It dish, but it does dish up, dish up some funny one-liners and uh, and physical humour. And much of the joy comes from the characterisations, the the way the roles are played. And really, I could run through a long list, and I didn't think there was a false step amongst them. But uh, Harold's and really skilled craft. I really like him as an actor. Ideal choice to play the flawed hero, and he's a natural. He revels in the banter that's critical to his persona. And I've got to say, I enjoyed the feistiness of Caitlin Olsen as Alex and, and the call it for what it is, openness and cheek of, of uh, I think it's Barbara Pollard, if I'm not mistaken, who plays her mother, Dot. 
Uh, and the only girl on the team, by the way, Madeline, Madison Tevlin brings this sort of don't, don't mess with me attitude uh, as Cosentino. By, by the way, the other aspect I wanted to mention is that Cheech Marin of Cheech and Chong fame, he's, he's in this one and uh, he's got this sort of easygoing guys as, as this representative of the youth centre. Uh, he's the sort of coordinator there. It's directed by Bobby Farrelly and he plays, uh, plays this movie for laughs. Now, did it appeal to you, Greg? Yes, it did surprisingly. As you said, it's a remake of a Spanish film, and often these Hollywood remakes are sort of overlong and too schmaltzy. But this one, I think, avoided a lot of the expected schmaltzy Hollywood sentimentality here. Um, I like the fact that all of the um, members of the team, Paul the Friends, have well-developed distinctive personalities there. They're quite well-developed here. And I thought Woody Harrelson did a good job um, as he, in his character there. He inhabited the character quite well. Bobby Farrelly often makes these kind of um, films looking at oddball characters, and he did a good job here. And I, I agree, I like Constantine. I thought she was a very good, a very strong character, mm. very forthright and outspoken there. Um, Cheech Marin, as you said, um, had a nice, easygoing presence here. The film does follow some of the usual tropes of the underdog story there, but I, I quite enjoyed it. And I, I especially like the relationship that developed between Harrelson's character and the members of the team. Yeah, likewise. There was a warmth about it. And, yeah, it's it's interesting we sort of reference Madison Tevlin. I, I, I really think that's one of the great performances. I, it really worked so well in the context of this movie. Uh, sort of, it, it, it's kind of like this little, this relatively short in stature, and I say that as a short statured person myself, you know, stands up to everybody and basically gives it back to them. I, I thought it was terrific in that regard, Peter. Uh, yeah, I don't quite agree. Um, <laughs> I really imagine you. I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed the Spanish version of the film because it had a, a darker quality to it, and the transformation of the coach uh, and the uh, and the disabled uh, people in the team was much more believable and much more naturalistic. This one I felt was overly contrived and overly sentimental to some extent and very predictable. I really worry about having to remake foreign language films that get it right uh, into an English language film, especially with uh, Bobby Farrelly, who smooths over the film um, with alleged comedy and so on, which doesn't work completely for me at all. Look, the people are well cast, the, the team... Uh, Woody Harrelson sort of smarms his way through most of the film. I don't know if he, I was quite convinced by his character, um, but I just kept harking back to the original Spanish film, how that was much more cutting edge. There'll be a lot of people who haven't seen that, Peter. So if, if you, and, and when you say having to remake, they don't have to remake. They they choose to remake. And I, I mean, there are a few examples where films have worked, like Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, right? That worked That worked in both foreign language and in the US, I thought. Uh, but in the day, something like The Intouchables, that great French film, um, the American remaker is a shocker. Yeah, and, and, and this is yeah. not unusual. I, I mean, do, do you, you wouldn't call this a shocker, though, would you, Peter? Champions? No, 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 no not, not a shocker, but an unnecessary remake from, from my mind. I think uh, the original is much better. And uh, look, we're now so used to foreign language films and good foreign language films. Why do we have to remake into English um, some of these films, especially uh, as they smooth over some of the, uh, 
the storyline and, and characters and uh, and make them so predictable and feel good and uh, and so on. So uh, for my mind, Champions is okay, but it is not a patch on the original Spanish film. But I tell you why this is done. It is because a lot of people still resist, regardless of the fact that you know we we watch movies regardless of nationality and we don't discriminate. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there who still say that they are not going to go and see a film that they need to read, which is, you know, their loss as far as I'm concerned too. But uh, that simply then means that if you don't remake a film, they're not going to see the story on the big screen. For goodness sake, people are now so used to subtitles. Look at Parasite. Look at so many other films that have uh, been successful. But I, I don't disagree with the concept, but I'm saying to you that if you if you did a poll today, Greg, I'll throw this at you. You, you. you walk around with a microphone in the city and you poll 100 people, would you go along and see a movie, a foreign language movie that you need to read? What do you think the result would be? Just a hand and a guess. I'd probably be locked up. You'd, you'd probably be locked up. Very good. No, but I mean, I, I, I don't think you'd get 50%. I, I honestly don't think you'd get fit. I think we're a lot more um, open to subtitles here than I hope so. Other countries, some other countries. Yeah. Well, when you say some other countries, I also surely sorry. I'm, yeah. Look, I also find a lot. Surely in Europe, yeah. in Europe, they wouldn't have any hesitation because they're in Europe, and you you travel you travel hundred kilometres in your another country or less than that. You know. Sorry, you go ahead, Peter. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think it's quite irrelevant to survey people and so on. We're talking about the quality of filmmaking and our reactions to particular oh, films. And, uh, so discussing the yeah. real world. And, uh, the, well, we're discussing the real world. And, uh, and whilst we will do this because we're, you know, we love our films, we love, we're, we love the film criticism that's inherent to our, our uh, personas, but the, the people who will go along and see, what, what's the average person's, how many movies do they see a year? Only two or three? Handful? Would they choose a movie like this? Maybe if it wins Oscars and things, it would. And this is not going to be that sort of film. It, it never was going to be. So anyway, it's it's an interesting discussion point. I, I don't know that we're, you know, we're not going to convince everybody. Hopefully, as Greg said, more and more are choosing to see quality over just English language, Peter. Uh, look, if we use that argument to its logical extension, we may as well not make any other films apart from the Marvel, uh, Star Wars, and superhero films because it's not. There's no point doing anything else because they're the only ones that are popular. Oh, gee, yeah, that, 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 <laughs> that 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 makes me very sad. That 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 really does make me very sad. I uh, look. I mean, it's um. How do we change the world? That that's my question. Uh, you know, I mean. Uh, where everything, the other aspect of it, and this is ironic because I, I often complain that a movie is too long. Uh, I, I just, it frustrates me no end, and this has got worse. More and more people, and we've used this sort of uh, conversation many times, put it on, on their damn phones in the cinemas. Drives me bananas. I, you can't, they, people just cannot concentrate. I don't care whether it's 90 minutes or 120 minutes. They simply shouldn't be doing it and i don't know what, what can cinemas do to ban it i mean i i, I really would like and i mean no no we can't do this but i'd really like people to leave their phones at the door that's never gonna happen but but i mean what seriously what the hell do we do greg how do we stamp this out surely we've got the technology now to have something at the door that um so 
just blocks mobile phones. Well, I, I would have thought so. But, I mean, look, mate, I, I suppose that um, I read a story about somebody who, who had his mobile phone on and he happened to be a, a doctor or a surgeon and had an urgent urgent patient. That's a different matter, and I, and, and I fully understand that. But that should be the exception rather than the rule, surely. That, that, that's the point that I'm making. I mean, you know. Well, if, if you're expecting an urgent call and you're, uh, you've gone in to see a film, why would you go in and see a film? Because it's going to happen during that film and it's going to spoil uh, everyone else's enjoyment of that film. So, look, okay. I agree. They're, they're, people need to turn their phones off. Yeah, but what, you know, while we were watching Creed 3 the other night, you all were in front of me had a phone on for the first 10 minutes of the film. I just leaned forward and said, are you here to watch the film or watch your phone all night? She turned around and gave me this dirtiest look, filthiest look. Um, but she kept the phone on for another couple of minutes. I leaked this and so on process. Then she muted the um, green a little bit. She had it all white. Oh, golly. Well, I don't, but, but Peter, Peter, I, I, I'll pick you up on one thing. If, okay, let, let's look at a, a, a pregnant person. Right, I'm not even allowed to say pregnant woman anymore, am I? But let's look at a pregnant person who doesn't know when they're going to give birth, and they decide as a night out they're going to go and and see a movie, uh, or whatever it might be, and and suddenly something happens, or she goes with a girlfriend, and, and the partner or whatever may not be with them, and and suddenly a waters break or whatever. I mean, what happens in that circumstance where you need a phone? Where you're going to say to her, urgent, you shouldn't, shouldn't go along? No, I. No, but urgent emergency issues like that will occur. Medical issues may occur. We're, we're talking about people who are just routinely there to see a film, but instead want to look at their screens the whole time. Yeah, yeah, no, I take the point. All right, Jair, 88FM, you are listening to Gregory King and to Peter Krauss and to yours truly, Alex First, Till, T-I-L-L-M, rated 131 minutes. It is too long. That's the first thing I will say about it. Deeply distressing drama based on fact concerning blatant racism, kidnapping and a particularly heinous murder of a 14-year-old boy. And we're talking about Mississippi, August 1955. The name of the movie Till comes from the lead character whose name is Emmett Till, played by Jalen Hall. Cheeky, cheery lad, loved music and dance, lived a good life in Chicago where he was being brought up by his single mother, Mamie, played by Danielle Deadweiler. And Mamie was a very proud, independent, forthright, respectable black woman, the only African-American employed by the Air Force in Chicago. Her husband, well, he was killed, unfortunately, serving his country in Europe during the Second World War. That was back in 1945, so a decade earlier. Emmett is really keen to visit his cousins in Mississippi, but Mamie's concerned he doesn't really understand how differently, read that to mean badly, whites treat blacks in that state. So she implores him to be courteous and respectful at all times on what's meant to be a short visit. And then she reluctantly, and I really emphasise that word, lets him go. Next thing we see is him picking cotton alongside his cousins and uncle and not liking it all that much. He's a bit of a, uh, he, he doesn't, doesn't like the hard work. Shortly thereafter, there's an incident at a grocery store and that changes everything. I'm deliberately leaving out the detail. That involves Emmett's interaction with a white female shopkeeper, which has dire consequences. Mamie is inconsolable, but determined to bring attention to what happened. 
and she takes unprecedented action in an attempt to expose injustice. And with that, she becomes a lightning rod in the civil rights movement. Director and co-writer alongside Michael Riley and Keith Beauchamp is Shinoni Chukwa. I've got that as badly mangled as I could possibly get it. Shinoni Chukwa. Crafted, I think, a really powerful and poignant film because the events depicted a really stomach-churning. I, I cannot emphasise that enough. Un, unconscionable, inhumane, but there's no getting away from the fact that this is real life. And, uh, I mean, Danielle Deadweiler, I, I thought, you know, her depiction of the righteous-driven mother who's wronged in the most egregious fashion is eye-catching. And really what stands out is her representation of dignity and defiance. It's very much her vehicle, her story to tell. And as such, Deadweiler is a dominant figure throughout. But, and this is the big but, notwithstanding that, I was troubled by Till. I thought it was really heavy-handed, and it did not need to be. Uh, the, the, the filmmakers took a heavy-handed approach. If ever there was a narrative that all but told itself without embellishment, this was it. So, I'll put it another way, the potency of the subject matter is unquestionable, but because of that, I would much have preferred a less is more approach. And as, as it was, the camera shots tended to linger a lot. And overall, the film was slow moving, at times ponderous. And and the music, oh my golly. I mean, you, you're not, this is, this is not a concert. It, it was, uh, the classical music score was prominent and overemphasized. So that doesn't mean I wasn't moved, I wasn't angered. But I couldn't shake the impression the strings were being pulled in a deliberate attempt to milk emotional resonance. And uh, so it's affecting, but it's manipulative, and I think it could have been better. Uh, what did you think of it, Greg? Till all, all films are manipulative in one way or another, Alex. Yeah, but but if you see they're manipulating, you want to be manipulated without knowing that you're being manipulated. Yeah, more subtle fashion, fair enough. I thought this was a film full of pain. Grief, anger, as our friend Sharon called it, as, as we walked left the cinema, she called it grief porn. Um, yeah. But it's also a howl of outrage against this blatant miscarriage of justice that went on there when the 14 year old um, Emma Till was um, killed in um, Mississippi while on holiday there. And the subsequent trial um, basically it was fixed from the word go. The sheriff hinted that it was a set up conspiracy by the NC, um, NAASAP. Um, so Garner sympathy. Um, the woman involved lied on the say on the sh- on the on the stand, and um, the jury was all white males, so the ju- verdict was not um, not in dispute there. Um, but as you said, this was the start of maybe the civil rights movement. Um, I thought that um, Dead Wireless performance there it was um, powerful, um, eye catching, as you said there. I thought it was really moving, um, full of pain, restrained rage. Um, and she explores a range of writing emotions. I'm not sure why she didn't get an Oscar nomination for this. I thought she was powerful. Mm. Oh, she was extremely powerful. Did you think the same thing, Peter? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was wondering why she uh, didn't get an Oscar nomination. I think this is a very powerful film for a number of reasons. First of all, the decisions that were made not to show the actual lynching. I mean, that would have been extremely manipulative uh, to begin with. Um, so I don't agree that the film is manipulative. I mean, if we look at Mississippi Burning and so many other films. Oh, th- but Mississippi Burning, and, far better than this. Far better. Uh, jury's out on that. Uh, I, what impressed me about Till 
is the focus was on the mother, was on Danielle Deadwilder's character, and first of all, her grief, uh, her foreboding and grief about what happened to her son, but then her fight for justice. And that's what makes this film so powerful. The the court sequences, I know that a lot of this, uh, some of this film, and a, a little bit, not quite, uh, the actual story, but that doesn't matter. It is a dramatization. But the, the court sequences are redolent with uh, abuse, with racism, with, uh, uh, you know, the, the all-white male jury, all that sort of thing that shows that uh, colored people or blacks, uh, African-Americans, will treat it so badly and in such a hostile way. I found it incredible that the uh, anti-lynching laws in the U.S. weren't repealed until 2016. We see yeah. that at the end credits. Absolutely amazing. Look, there is so much to admire and enjoy in this film. Uh, appreciate, perhaps might be a better word, because of this one woman's determination and power to um, uh, get over her grief and to use it in a positive way to advance uh, African-American situations and so on. Look, uh, I was quite impressed by this film. I didn't find it manipulative. And, Gregor, you're quite right. Every film is manipulative. This one, I think, worked effectively, especially because it didn't show us the lynching. It showed us the outcome and the impact. And that's what I felt made it so effective. Yeah. This film set a decade before the events of Mississippi burning, and it illustrates that nothing much has changed in the attitudes in Mississippi or America since out. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I'm, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I really felt like the strings were being pulled virtually from the get go, and, and you know, it took ages to even to get going. As far as I'm concerned, it still wasn't a bad film. It wasn't a, but it was. I'd call it decent without going beyond that. I'll, I'll give it a seven out of ten, and we've got to give a score. I, I don't think we can go to score to uh, champions either so we'll we'll do both i'm giving seven to both films greg what are you giving for the, the two films till and champion i'm gonna give till eight and i'll give champion seven till eight champion seven okay peter uh, i give champion six and uh till eight okay good we are going to talk about uh, a cup of a few shows in the time that remains and uh, by all means jump in uh when you when you want to now, Romeo and Juliet, how many versions of that in, in all its splendor have there been over the years? I mean, I, I think most people will have lost count. But I went and saw and had the good fortune to go to the Regent and see Anne Juliet, which is, it's fabulous to get a new show, something we haven't seen, something that we haven't seen multiple times before. I know that new generations see older shows and that's perfectly fine, but this is, this is really something different. It's, it's, it's riotous fun. It's a thoroughly entertaining musical for our new enlightened times. And it picks up Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet where it ended and it kicks it up a gear. And it does so after the bard himself, played by Rob Mills, is challenged by his wife. By the way, this is a trivial pursuit question without notice. Do you know what Shakespeare's, William Shakespeare's wife's name was? Any, either of you off the top, Peter? Anyway. Very good. Greg, you didn't you didn't cheat? You didn't Google it? No, I've known her for a long time, Peter. Um, sorry, um, Alex. Yeah, I, I mean, and and there's a butte line in there about you know they ca they can't be another Anne Hathaway, uh, which I thought was uh, was very clever. But anyway, Anne Hathaway is played by Amy La Palmer. So basically, Shakespeare's challenged by Anne Hathaway, who's suffered a second fiddle to his writing for far too long, to reconfigure 
the story of the star-crossed lovers. Imagine if Juliet did not die, did not kill herself, when she saw the body of Romeo. That's the contention. I think that's clever, Peter, isn't it? You know, well, you can adapt and vary things as much as you want. Why not? Well, yeah, I mean... Uh, Cyrano de Bergerac has been adapted in various forms too, hasn't it? Yes, that's right. In, even a musical. Yes. Shakespeare is uh, open to all sorts of modern interpretations. Look at 10 things I had about you. That's yep. very good. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, I, I like the creativity involved is, in this one because basically the, the, the parents are at the funeral, uh, and I won't give too much away, but at the funeral, poor little Juliet uh, is, is mortified to learn that she wasn't Romeo's only love, and he was quite a womanizer. <laughs> you know, and it just takes off from there. And and she, the parents, are horrified about the shame that she's brought to the family, and want to stick her into a nunnery. And and instead, she basically hightails it with some mates to Paris. So it, that's kind of the story. I just thought, wow, what a creative! It takes a creative endeavor. It's a bold undertaking. I mean, let's be honest about that. Uh, this is not Romeo and Juliet as we've ever seen it before. And, uh, I mean, it, it's a, it's really cleverly conceived and written by a guy called David West Reed. Now, I don't know whether you know that name, but in, in January of 2016, he was asked to pitch a musical based around... around now, Greg, you're, you're a big aficionado for music. Do you know the name Max Martin? I'm not saying you should. I'm just asking. No? No, that doesn't spring to mind. Okay, so Max Martin... <laughs> has written a, a, a voluminous catalogue of hits uh, that have been... Uh, I'll give you some of the names that he's written music for. Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, Keisha, Demi Lovato, Katy Perry, Ariana Grande, Bon Jovi, Kelly Clarkson, Adam Lambert, The Weeknd, Celine Dion, NSYNC, Pink, Justin Timberlake. That's just all some... All them, Alex. The only one I listen to is Bon Jovi. Oh, all right. Well... Okay, if I mention some of the songs, Greg, would you have at least heard of some of the songs? I'll, I'll mention them, and then you can, you can tell me at the end. And this is this this is not all of them. Larger than life, I wanted that way, baby. One more time, show me the meaning of being lonely. Show me love. I kissed a girl. Since you've been gone, what you want from me? One more try. Everybody, the back, back streets back. As long as you love me and roar. You must have heard of some of those songs, Greg. I kissed a girl by Katy Perry. Yes. Okay. Well, there's 27 hit songs, one original number. They fit perfectly into the narrative. They help kick the story along. The, the up-tempo tunes bring with them wild audience acclamation. And, you know, the biggest cheers and the wolf whistles, you know what they were saved for, Greg? No. When a, when a boy band gets together. It was a packed opening night at the Regent, and people were on their feet cheering this out. This made-up boy band, I kid you not. I just, it was such a, it's such a fun story. There is a lot of laughter in this, and there's a lead actress that just blows your socks off. Her name is Lorinda May Merrypoor, M-E-R-R-Y-P-O-R. What a revelation is Juliet. Really strong grasp of character, confident from the get-go, vocally, oh my golly, how superb she is. Great feeling injected into the numbers. And Amy LaPama, a great favourite of mine, consummate professional, steals much of the limelight with her characterization, and, I've got to say, vocal acuity is Anne. Casey Donovan, 
boy, oh boy, songstress personified. Immediate impression that she makes. She she has some don't mess with me presence, and and you can imagine that about Casey. I I I, I think she's terrific. Rob Mills, wow, plays up the self love that comes with being arguably the greatest writer of all time. So he takes the P one double S, and and musically he's commanding. So that's just some of the featured artists here. There's a newcomer called Jacinth Fernando. He brings this refreshing exuberance to uh, a, a French character. There's a um, there's a faux French accent that's really accentuated by Hayden T. Uh, and and it just goes on. Jesse Dutlow has a mellifluous voice, channels indignance in May. He plays a transgender role. And Blake Applequist ensures that Romeo is brought down a few pegs as the yarn unfolds, he's got this greater sense of self-awareness that develops during the mu- the, uh, the the musical production. All the voices are really sensational. Nine-piece band, oh, great, knocks it out of the park. Direction from Luke Shepard, musical supervision, orchestrations and arrangements from Bill Sherman. They do not miss a beat. This is cheeky, it's cheery, it's bold, it's brassy. It's a great night out. It's the way forward for the next generation of inclusive musical. This is a really, really fine production, and I, I look people. People are going to love it. I, it's it's that sort of production, and I would highly commend it to you. For the traditionalists who like traditional musicals, this is you're not going to be stepping back into the fifties. Let me assure you. But it it really it, it ticks all the boxes. Girl power lives in this. Let me tell you, and uh, inclusiveness lives. There's nothing wrong with that. We. This is turning over a whole new leaf for musicals. So it, it, it's setting a benchmark, and I think that's brilliant. It's on at the Regent Theatre. Moment tickets can buy till the 14th of May. Now, Greg, uh, we're on JA, by the way, 88 FM. Have you seen uh, Green Day's American Idiot? Did you see that when it came to the Comedy Theatre some time ago? Well, I did. I did. Do you know Green Day? I know Green Day. I don't listen to it much, but I um, know the band. Yeah, built for by Billy Joe Anderson. You should be known as Happy Children. Oh, do they? Okay. Well, it's a, they're a punk rock band, of course, yeah. and uh, they've oh, gee, they've won five Grammys. They were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame the first year that they had eligibility, which was 2015. So, you know, very well credentialed. And this was debuted on Broadway, Green Day's American Idiot, in 2010, received a couple of Tony Awards, which is, uh, uh, I can understand why. The music is fantastic. I, I mean, really loved it. I, I couldn't get enough of it. I saw it twice at the comedy, and this is the third time I've seen it. Story of three mates, Johnny, Will, and Tunny, and they're grappling with the decision to either challenge the status quo and break out of their aimless rut or remain in the confines of their urban existence. It's set, I mean, it, it's all about anger, and it, it's about frustration and fears and dreams and challenges of life in, in this media-saturated post 9-11 era we're talking just after 2000 so that's what it's all about will stays home with his pregnant girlfriend tunny joins the army shipped off to war and badly injured and johnny that it's around whom most of the musical gravitates he turns to drugs and he finds a part of himself that he grows to dislike that's the storyline three female leads are really really strong as well one of them the character's known as what's her name and that's johnny's girlfriend played by romy mcelroy i thought she was she was fabulous. She was one of the best things about this production. And uh, the, the Johnny character as well, played by Matt Dwyer, he's got a real presence in, in this musical. So Thomas Martin as well, cast as the, the All-American Armed Forces recruiter known as Favourite Son. It's a pulsating, 
high-octane score which underpins the anarchy that is this musical's lifeblood. And when I say musical, I mean it. It's wall-to-wall music, kind of material that stirs an audience. And and there's 17 cast members and the band, brilliant musical director, Tara Cannon. She's mighty. There's a nine-piece band in this one, this show as well. It's a, look, it, it, it's energy on a stick. That's the essence of Green Day's American Idiot. It, it basically is this constant movement as well, slick movement, integral to the piece. Grace Collins has done a fine job with the choreography. And there's an industrial setting complete with graffiti wall backdrop. The lighting by Jason Boved is masterful. Uh, his use of, of tight, multi-hued spotlights is a memorable feature of Green Day's American Idiot. 90 minutes with a 20-minute interval. It's loud. It's proud. It leaves an indelible impression. It's directed by Scott Bradley, playing at Chapel Off Chapel until the 26th of March. So that is well worth catching up with as well. As is, we, we'll talk about this a bit next week because we're going to run out of time in a bit more detail, but Bernhard Hamlet. Now, are you familiar with the actress, and we're talking about you know going back to Paris in 1899 where this is set, but um, if I mention Sarah Bernhardt, Peter, would you would you know that name? Absolutely. I was there in 1899 when she had her first performance. She's <laughs> I expected nothing less. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, well, uh, you would know this name, Peter. Edmund Rostand. Who was yes. he? Um, I think that's to do with, um, uh, oh, for goodness sake. That's um, Cyrano de Boudreaux. Very that's good. right. That's it. That's it. Exactly. And it's the relationship between them that's explored in this. We'll talk about it in a bit more detail next week. Kate Mulvaney really impresses in the lead. She plays a woman who decides that she's a 55-year-old woman who decides to play a 19-year-old Hamlet. So that's worth catching. And please, folks, go and see When the Rain Stops Falling. Absolutely brilliant at TheatreWorks. This finishes on the 18th of March. TheatreWorks in St Kilda. An absolutely brilliant, brilliant performance. But performances led by Francis Greenslade. One of the best things that I have seen in the last year. It is absolutely magnificent. When the rain stops falling, it blew my mind. We'll do it all again next week. We will talk about the Oscar winners and what's going on beyond that. Peter, thank you. Greg, thank you. And catch you next week on First on Film and Entertainment.